Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. What's going on, Rachel? Not much, Chris. I'm really excited. We didn't get to talk last week, so whenever I, I miss a Talking With Tech week, I feel like, oh my God, what's Chris doing? Where is he? I'm sad. Well, I am locked in my closet as always, so no, no great updates since the last time I've seen you. What about you, though? Now you have some stories to share. What's going on? I do. So I am um, really excited. Um, you know how I, I feel like we talked about how we had the Talking With Tech Live and there was like this buzz and energy after and I woke up feeling, you know, so excited that we had done something so cool and so energizing. I have to say I had the same feeling this morning because yesterday I coordinated, a, we'll call it a mini event. Um, it was internal within my team, but Hannah Foley, who was on the podcast, um, I think in February is when that episode released least Hannah Foley came to meet one of my clients and this client is uh, 22 years old and I've been working with him for a few years and it was awesome so I have been trying to search for a a virtual group or meetup for this uh, this student of mine and we just like haven't been able to find anything because he's kind of at a place where he has He's a little bit more advanced than like an emergent communicator, but he doesn't quite have the language skills to be conversational. And so anyway, I've been going back and forth and reaching out to so many different people. And Hannah was one of the people that I reached out to. Long story short, we ended up having a little meet and greet yesterday. And oh my gosh, first of all, I love Hannah Foley. She's she's my bestie. And she like definitely came and delivered some like really inspirational things you know we had a few questions that um, I had gathered from my team because it was I invited my clinicians to come too because we, we work with kids with AAC every day in my practice but a lot of my clinicians have never met someone who is an adult who uses AAC so I thought it was a really great opportunity for them to meet Hannah, um, especially because since she's been on the podcast, she's an AAC celebrity now. So um, all my clinicians who listen to the podcast were like, yes, like, oh, my God, yes. So anyway, I had this really great kind of meet and greet with Hannah yesterday, and I was so bummed, actually, because I had to leave and go see a kid um, virtually, of course. But yes, I was so thankful to have Hannah come on. And um, I know for a fact that the family was really excited and Definitely, I think the wheels you could see were spinning and um, often we, the, 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 the parents kept kind of circling back to, well, like, how can we get, you know, our son to communicate like you, Hannah? Um, and so it's like, yes, like that's the goal, right? Like, so I think it's really great to be able to show, you know, what all of our hard work can pay off, you know, for. Um, so anyway. I am so thankful to have Hannah in my life as a friend and um, was so grateful for her to come. Um, we're actually like talking about potentially doing some type of other event for parents because uh, it was just a really impactful experience, I think. And, you know, just like my clinicians who work every day with AAC have never met an AAC user, I'm sure a lot of parents have never met an AAC user as well. And so I think it's just like really great experience to kind of showcase what what, you know, all of our work can end up looking like. Mm -hmm. I know that is a strategy we uh, have talked about in the past, and I think it's a fantastic one. I think there's uh, we can put these in buckets.
buckets for a second. So if the ultimate goal is to get people who have um, who have not experienced someone who has who is a, a functional uh, user of AAC who has met that snug goal and can say whatever they want to say, and we want to get more people to meet them and and have that as the end goal in mind, then I feel like there's different buckets. So one bucket is what you just did, which is a synchronous Google Meet or Zoom call or whatever, a video conference where you can have this interaction and ask questions. And that can, like you said, get the wheels turning and it paints a picture for this is where we're headed. And that's, that is a strategy that works in, in classrooms for other things as well. Like, you know, hey, uh, we're learning about bees. Let's go talk to an entomologist, you know, to learn about the skills, you know. And so I feel like that's one really powerful one. Another bucket is an asynchronous version. And I feel like that's something we're trying to provide here with the podcast and the interviews we provide. It's like, well, I might not be able to sync up synchronously and know somebody and get that the schedules lined up and get everyone in the, in the Zoom room at the same time, but I can have you watch this YouTube video and I can have you listen to this podcast and you can do it on your own time. And I feel like that's a second bucket that that people, uh, that's an, another uh, way that we can provide um, that sort of si- similar experience. It's not as powerful as being able to ask questions right there in the moment, but it's like the a plan B, if you will. Yeah, no, it was a really, it was really exciting for, I think, everybody involved yesterday, um, myself included, because, you know, I love connecting with uh, Hannah, of course, but I also just was super excited for everybody to meet her because, um, like you said, it's just like a really cool experience to be able to see that. And um, I think everybody left feeling really energized and hopeful. And so it was really cool. Uh, So yes, I love that we're able to have the opportunity, Chris, to meet AAC users and to have them come on and to really amplify their voices. So that's something that I love the most about this podcast is that, yes, we talk about AAC and we talk to a lot of clinicians um, and we have, you know, researchers and clinicians and parents come on our podcast. But my favorite is the AAC users, because I think we can learn a lot from people who actually use AAC. Um, They teach us a lot about our own practice and how to kind of start thinking through the lens of long-term AAC and what it looks like for an adult. I could not agree more. Now, so speaking of being excited and learning things, tell us about what's going on with this interview. It's going to be a two-part interview, but it's not you or me doing the interview. It is... It's two AAC All-Stars, actually. So we were so lucky to have Erin Sheldon uh, reach out to us, and she's sharing an interview that she did with Karen Erickson. So it's like two big names in AAC together. Uh, she shared this amazing interview that she did with Karen, and you know, right now there's definitely a buzz about AAC and literacy, and so we're really excited that um, you know both Erin and Karen were able to share this interview with us. Um, And we're really excited to air it because there's a lot of really great gems in there. So we're going to be splitting it up. This week, you're going to hear the first part. Next week, you're going to hear the second part. And really excited because we know how important literacy is um, when we're thinking about AAC and also how daunted people feel sometimes by, you know, teaching literacy to kids who are complex communicators. So really pumped for this episode. So without further ado, here's Aaron Sheldon's interview with Karen Erickson, part one. Here at Talking With Tech, we're excited to partner with Smiles for Speech. 
This organization provides children with special needs living in impoverished communities the intervention and resources needed to help children reach their full potential. Smiles for Speech aims to provide long-term sustainable solutions for children worldwide. Their mission is to distribute educational materials, provide training to teachers and families without access to appropriate intervention, and to create global awareness on the importance of therapeutic services to support children in need. With your help, Smiles for Speech will continue to broaden their reach in assisting children living in disadvantaged communities gain access to the therapy services and education they need to thrive. To support this organization, you can sign up for their upcoming Dyslexia Workshop that will highlight the diagnosis gap present among black learners. This workshop will be on October 10th from 8 to 9 Eastern Time. To RSVP, go to sfsvirtual at smilesforspeech.org. That's sfsvirtual at smilesforspeech.org. So Karen, thank you so much for taking time out of such an incredibly busy conference to sit down and talk to us. Very happy to do it. I'm wildly excited, especially after attending so many completely packed sessions here at ASHA. I mean, you obviously draw an enormous crowd of speech therapists to come hear you. Yeah, I have to tell you that that's new. That has not always been the case. Okay. Um, I think part of what's happening is that we are starting to see a sea change in people's understandings of why literacy matters for kids with significant disabilities. And I think the other huge difference at ASHA is I do believe that all of the AAC clinicians are starting to recognize that they've been leaving out a large population of kids. Um, that first morning when I had that session, that everything about the title and the description made it very clear that I was going to focus on the group of children who have the most complex multiple disabilities, including blindness and deafblindness and um, severe intellectual disability. And I could only see the room that I was in right. and it filled up and it was uh, like 300 people. Mm -hmm. And then when I found out afterwards that there were three overflow rooms full, the idea that we could get that many speech language pathologists to self-identify that they needed to come learn and think about this population of children who have not had access to AAC historically. Right. Um, you know, I know what, that you and I talk often about the problems with this candidacy model and the problems with this lack of access. And so it was just so exciting to have that many people show up. Um, that's not been my history at okay. ASHA. So um, it really has been a pretty overwhelming response this time that is very exciting to think about the possibility for these kids that we really care about so much. It was overwhelming to me as a parent mm -hmm. watching all these speech therapists so excited about it. I mean, it was just... There were like amens in the I first know. five minutes, right? Yeah. Like it was just, it was really overwhelming. It really has been. And I've never in my career, and I've been at this for a long time, I've never had so many people go out of their way to come and say something to me about right that particular talk. Right. Um, yeah, and so it's just maybe I've always had this dream that somewhere in my career, all really is gonna mean all, and maybe this is the tipping point. Like maybe we're finally there, and now people will stop questioning uh, 
if if it is, but instead start questioning how. Right. Um, and that would be a really exciting place for us all to get to. So I, yes, I agree. So I feel like you've raised three really key points here. So one is literacy and the importance of teaching literacy to all students and all really meaning all. So I want to dig into that. One is access to AAC because all really does mean all. And I've already forgotten what my third was, but it was in there and I'm mm -hmm. sure I will remember what it was. Um, it just came up in what you were talking about. So why don't we, why don't we start with all really means all because of what I remember of the state of this field only about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. which was all meant everyone except. Uh -huh. And there was this idea that some kids, the most respectful thing we could do for some kids was to sort of make things look like literacy and look like communication because that was all that they were capable of. Mm -hmm. And that was really prevalent, yeah. in the, especially in the school inclusion field about 10 years mm -hmm. ago. So can you speak to that at all? Do you know what I'm yeah. referring to? Yeah, I do. Um, and I unfortunately think it's not really gone in the school inclusion field. I think we still have this emphasis on um, having kids look like they're doing what their peers are doing. So we'll take the kind of rich learning activity that the peer is doing and we'll turn it into a slot filler, error-free worksheet where the child's not really being asked to think about anything. It just looks like they're doing what their peers are doing. And then the gap just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, most recently in the United States, we've had this emphasis on um, all students having access to the grade level content. But you know, the actual law says grade level curriculum and grade level standards. And providing access to grade level standards means that you're doing everything you can to help children achieve those standards, which for most of the kids with the most complex needs means we're giving them very different kinds of materials. Mm -hmm. So if the standard is if a standard about understanding the conflict that occurs between two characters in a story, I can't have you identify who the characters are in the same text that your peers are reading. What if instead I have a much simplified version of where the conflict is so obvious that I can actually get you thinking about conflict and conflict resolution and, and how conflicts arise and that that's the place where it becomes rich and where I'm helping you achieve the standard, not helping you in this sort of cursory way interact with the same materials that your peers are interacting with. So we have lots of work that we've done at the Center for Literacy and Disability Studies where we work with children with very complex multiple disabilities where they really have spent the first 10 years of their lives learning how to sit up and swallow and be safe doing those two things at the same time where they've had so many medical needs that they've been l missing huge amounts of school. And so they really are adolescents as they're becoming medically stable and able to be at school on a regular basis. And we finally figured out how to keep them positioned and get their hips from subluxing, like all of those complexities. And so we aren't getting started with literacy instruction until they're 12 and 14 and 15 mm -hmm. years old. But we now have a growing list of 25 and 30 and 35 year olds who are literate adults who interact daily with a wide array of people in their social network using 
Facebook and text messages and print as the way they interact with the world. And they're becoming more literate every day, just in the same way that I'm a full professor at a university and I get more literate every day by reading and writing and interacting with the world. And, and I think we, we have to keep in mind that we can teach reading and writing every day to every person and that we shouldn't be giving up where 10 years ago, the textbooks regularly said that if the child isn't reading by the time they get to middle school, we should go into a functional route, whatever right. that meant. Um, 10 years ago, we regularly had textbooks that said they were how to teach reading to students with severe disabilities. And then the first chapter would be this, or the introduction, would be this long exclusion list of all the kids that they didn't mean, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like severe disability up to a point and then beyond that. But now we, we know how to do this and it's not easy and it's not gonna happen in the same time frame. We might be in a stage of emergent literacy for two decades, mm -hmm. but we do now have these individuals who have significant intellectual disabilities who are reading and writing and living these rich lives. But I'll tell you just yesterday, my friend who's 34 years old has, he's sick and he posted on Facebook, pre, well, he asked his mom this time because he's so sick, but he's able to post on Facebook when things happen in his life to ask his friends to please pray for him. Right? He's able to write his own Christmas letters every year. He's able to post about the wonderful things that happen in his life and the scary things that happen in his life and maintain those friendships. And I have kept these Christmas letters for two and a half decades. And you can see each year that this man is getting more and more and more literate. But that only happened because he was lucky enough to be born into a family with a mom who already was an elementary school teacher mm -hmm. who went back and got a license to, and got a master's degree in assistive technology, who then interacted with the literacy center from the time he was 10 years old, hmm. who had this commitment and continues to have this commitment to make sure that literacy is this big part of his life. And, you know, as a, as a man with very severe multiple physical disabilities, visual impairments, intellectual disabilities, he needed literacy as the way that he can have some control and interaction and ways to, to just be able to negotiate his life in ways that are personally relevant and meaningful to him. That, to what I'm thinking about while you're talking is there was a research study in the Angelman syndrome community, because that's what my daughter has, about mm -hmm. 10 years ago that interviewed parents about what was important to them about their child's education. And literacy was scored very low. People mm -hmm. were not interested in literacy. What they wanted for their son or daughter was participation in life. They wanted friendships. They just wanted relevant communication that made their lives bigger. Mm -hmm. And what I hear you saying is that literacy is that vehicle and language is that vehicle yes. that does that. Like, just think about, I don't know, just this morning, you and I exchanged four text messages right? Like literacy is the way that we socially connect with each other now. And especially if you're an individual who can't use speech to communicate. And so I can't pick up the phone and call you. Imagine being the difference in being the generation who's my age that was born with complex communication needs, who couldn't use speech effectively to communicate. And, and the ways that they had to communicate with other people 
oh my goodness, they were so dependent on only being able to have the people in their immediate environment who could see the things they were pointing to in order to communicate. There was no email, there was no t computers, there was nothing. And now to think about what's possible, that we can have children from the time they're two years old having access to voice output. We can have children by the time they're going to school have access to electronic technology that allows them to talk to people across the room that as soon as they're able to have some level of literacy to be able to communicate with the mom who they otherwise, when I was a child, we'd walk down to the principal's office and ask, can we call home because we had a problem that our kids couldn't do that before, but now they can text. And even if your daughter isn't able to spell well enough for you to have a clue what she's saying, if you got a text message from school that said PQFDDD, <laughs> you'd be at school in a hurry trying to figure out what's going on that your child figured out how to reach out to you. So, so literacy is this incredibly important way that we socially connect with each other right now. You know, I have another personal story of a, a young woman who was um, the star of many videos 25 years ago because of the success of her social inclusion in school. Um, and in fact, when I was a professor in New Hampshire, she audited the classes that I took as a, a young adult. And um, it was a class on inclusive practices. And I had the students get into groups. And it turns out that one of the students who was studying to be a speech language pathologist in my class was this woman's best friend in second grade. Um, and so they had had this friendship when they were very little. But of course, the second grader who's now studying to be a speech language pathologist learns to read and write and makes all this progress. And her peer, who has severe disabilities, in fact, never even developed any symbolic means of communication. Right. Right. And so she had this beautiful context dependent relationship with these peers, her family, like the, the risk that they took and the, the trust that they placed in their daughter's friends. She went on vacation with her high school friends without an adult supervisor, like, here you go, take my kid and, and take our keys to the van and go. And, and they would haul her up to the top of the water park slides. And I mean, you watch these videos and it was everything every parent dreams for their child. Mm -hmm. And then they graduated from high school. And I got to be friends with this woman when all of her friends went away. And she couldn't read and write well enough to maintain any kind of a social relationship with them from a distance. They would try to call, but it was a one-way conversation because she didn't have a way in that decontextualized. They couldn't see her face. They couldn't read her gestures. They couldn't have the kinds of interactions. And so I know she continued to be so important to them, but she had this incredibly rich life until everybody graduated. And then she had to start all over again in a world where no longer did she have daily access to the same people whose whole life was around establishing social relationships and learning, right? That's what school is about. But as we leave school, those opportunities become fewer and fewer. So we have to teach the skills to be able to establish and maintain social relationships with people who aren't sitting next to you. and and. And that requires literacy today. Right. We've got to be figuring that out.
So in the context of inclusion, with this girl you just described, mm -hmm. you could be describing my daughter. Uh -huh. And when she was seven and in second grade, I have videos of her at the top of the fair fun house with only other seven-year-olds, <laughs> helping her go up there so she can go down a three-foot slide. <laughs> a three-story slide. Three-story yeah. slide, yeah. slide. Yeah. 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 With And then they came down first <laughs> and left her and left her and I was like you left her and they're like no she wanted us to go first she wanted to see us she's coming don't worry uh -huh. and she came down <laughs> oh. yeah so yeah so that was very much so that story really resonates and I would say even by third or fourth grade though the other kids in her regular classroom could tell there was no expectation that she was learning what they were learning. Mm -hmm. And what I, I think what sent me to graduate school was seeing that if we don't assume that every child in this inclusive classroom is potentially literate and it is our job to teach them literacy, then we actually communicate to all of the kids in the class that this is just our friend who visits and all the rest of us are doing the work of learning. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I feel like that's such a common thing I see with kids with inclusive placements is because we haven't figured out how to teach them, we actually communicate to all of the kids that they're not even here to learn. And, and we end up with this very charitable concept of what inclusion is all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think going back to what we were talking about before, I think this notion of participation, mm -hmm. this value on making it look like what everybody else is doing, you know, by the time you're nine years old, you can look over and see the work that the kid's doing next to you and think, what, what, what are they asking you to do? Like, mm -hmm. like, it doesn't matter what you do. It's going to like, what are you doing? right and and i think we're not fooling anybody and i think most of all we're not fooling that child with severe disabilities right. and then we wonder why we you know people get frustrated well they're not motivated by anything well what are you giving them interesting to engage with over time right and i think that um your daughter's peers and and the peers of the the woman who became my friend is that I, they would have they know that things are harder. They're they're not they're they get that it's harder for her to get up to the top of that slide. They get that they need to all provide a model of what it looks like to come down before she's going to be able to organize her body to come down. Like they get all of that. We don't have to teach them any of that. They live that every day. And so I think similarly they would get that oh, she's learning how to read and so that's why she has these materials that actually don't look a lot like ours because of course she needs something that's going to look a little different. But when I look at it, I can actually figure out what it is that she's being asked to do and learn here. When I look at that no fail kind of slot filler activity stuff, any nine-year-old, any six-year-old in the world looks at it and thinks, what am I supposed to do here? Right? right? Like it doesn't make right. sense to me. Right. And, and, and we can get our kids with more severe needs to to play along with that for a while but then they catch on too right like well i'm just gonna like slap at the page here because it doesn't matter what i do right so i think that that kids tolerate kids who learn in different ways and at different paces mm -hmm. but what what we need to get better at is figuring out how do we make sure learning is continuously happening right how do we make sure that the decisions we make every day are working on things that are gonna help this child not just get it right today, 
but are going to build some core skills that are going to allow them to be that much more engaged and happy when they're 25. Right. Right. Like that's the place where it becomes hard. Right. We can, we can help 10 year olds be happy. Right. <laughs> we know right, what to do, right, right. but 25 right. year olds become really lonely. 16 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it just doesn't take that long for the lack of ability to truly engage in meaningful ways um, that don't feel fake. Right. Right. So this is making me think about the conversations we have in the parent community about presuming competence. Mm -hmm. And I remember when Maggie was little and I would say, I really don't know how much language she's understanding. And I want to know how to teach her to understand language. And people would say, oh, no, you have to presume competence. Mm -hmm. Just presume she's understanding everything. Uh -huh. And I would say, well, okay, but I really don't think that she's comprehending language. <laughs> and I need to know. And I'm presuming competence because I presume that she can learn language. But there was this idea that presuming competence meant we pretend that we that we, we just assume comprehension rather right. than assume capacity to learn, mm -hmm. yeah. I guess. And anytime, and anytime I saw families go to make the argument for presumed competence, it felt like what they were saying is presume there's no intellectual disability mm -hmm. because only those kids who don't have intellectual disability are actually capable of learning. So that's the argument I'm going to make is I want you to presume my kid is not intellectually disabled. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's your response to that? Yeah, so I find it really frustrating, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I feel like um, part of, that, as people who are trying to support and promote and, and create more inclusive learning opportunities, I don't think we're helping anybody by pushing the presumed competence to mean, presume that this child can learn and understand everything their same age peers do in the same time presented in the same way. Uh, just yesterday, I was talking with a general education fourth grade teacher who has um, students with really complex disabilities included in her class. I think it's just one a year. It's a really nice mm -hmm. model. Um, and and they're doing a lot of the um, adapting it so that the kid is reading the same book that their peers are reading. Um, but they're not really reading. and. And there isn't any effort, there isn't any intention that the child will become a better reader through that activity. Right. The intention is that the child will interact with the same content. Right. Right. And, but, but the feedback, the pushback I get from people who are in this community of trying to promote conclusion is that, Karen, when you don't presume competence, people don't let our kids into the classroom. And I'm like, oh, that's a problem. If you have to demonstrate, that you have some, you can pass some bar in order to get a seat in a publicly funded general education classroom, we've created an enormous problem. Right. And this fourth grade teacher, when I was talking to her about, like, just think about, don't think about your children who have IEPs. Think about the rest of the children. So your children don't, don't have identified disabilities receiving special ed services, but just the, the variation of the rest of the children in your classroom. Are you telling me that all of those fourth graders are reading at the same level? And she said, oh no, I have fourth graders who read at first grade level. And I have other children with like language learning disorders who still can't read and write at all. I'm like, so what are you doing to help them become better readers and writers? Because certainly you presume that a child who has no identified disabilities has the capacity to learn 
to read and write. And you would, I hope, have a goal in place to help that child be reading and writing before you send them off to middle school. Like, right? Like, isn't that, isn't that your presumption about every child that comes into your class? And, and I think our kids, our kids being this community of kids with severe disabilities, they, they deserve that same presumption that I don't, I don't presume that every child in my fill in the blank classroom can all do the same thing. I work with the smartest PhD students you could ever imagine, but I don't presume that they all come in the door with the same experiences and the same background and that I could just have them all funnel through doing the same thing. It's not the way learning works. But I absolutely have a presumption when every one of them walks through the door that they're all going to find their path to success and make a contribution and be able to. So I think we need to get away from this idea that we that I think it's dangerous for us to presume competence if it's intended in the way that says all kids understand the same thing, because then that denies opportunity to learn. So if instead our presumption is a presumption of potential mm -hmm. and our presumption is it really doesn't matter what the IQ test says your intellectual disability is, we can still teach you. The challenge is the more significant your intellectual disability is, the harder we have to work. We have to work harder. We have to be smarter teachers. We need to be more responsive. We can't take the easy way out and just take our book and plunk it into Microsoft and say, will you summarize this for me? And then plunk it into some picture supported text program and then think, ooh, aren't we clever? We've done this. Like that's not gonna help a kid become a better reader and a writer. We have to be smarter than that. Um, and I think, I think we now have a lot of those strategies and a lot of evidence that we are smarter than that. Now we need to figure out how do we get that word out to people and, and how do we continue to build the will? Mm -hmm. um, and I think going back to our first conversation, certainly in the speech language community, I think we're building that will. I, right. think, I think we're at that place where people are saying, all right, I know I have to do this. And so now I need to learn more about how. Right. Yeah. This is making me think of our, our context in Ontario. Mm -hmm where we have a regular curriculum that says all students are curious and capable of learning and we will make that presumption for every student. And we have a human rights framework that says children with disabilities have the right to the accommodations they need to fully participate in society and in school and that an accommodation is what we do to remove barriers to participate in all of the regular things right and that the accommodation should never be a barrier mm -hmm. so if special education is a is an accommodation of a disability the purpose of special education is to provide access to the regular curriculum and participation and all the regular things. So we have this amazing on paper framework we're operating within. At the same time, our Ministry of Education does not require students to have access to the curriculum and allows schools to write IEPs that are 100% alternate goals that have no skill for sequence and no relevance to the regular curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we have an AAC system, a, a system of providing AAC that has prerequisite skills. And so you have to demonstrate knowledge of symbols to have access to symbols. And so we're in this place where we have what on paper, the policy barriers have been removed, sort of the big, mm -hmm. but the actual practice, what's actually happening on the ground. I hope we're all experiencing a lot of cognitive dissonance trying to figure this out. Um, 
I know that's a lot. I just pile yeah. on you, but what is your response to that? Or what's the thinking that we should mm -hmm. be having in Ontario in order to actually make that human rights framework and that presumption that all children are curious and capable of learning? Mm -hmm. How do we bridge that? Yeah, so I, I wonder if some of the things you might do is to think about being really clear in the definitions of things like access. Because okay. I think access is one of those dangerous words. Okay. And I think it's what's happening for us in the States right now, where there's this emphasis, where we have a federal mandate that all children have access to the general ed curriculum. And that notion of access, I think, is what leads to the kinds of uh, accommodations and modifications that actually prevent learning. And so to be really thoughtful about offering an operational definition of that notion of access and the notion of accommodation that focus on the learning target as opposed to the materials that are being used. And, and to think about that it has to be an accommodation not of the material, but an accommodation of the instruction in order to support access to build curiosity, right? right. Like that's that piece, I think particularly in a world where we have AT, where we have all this cool software, we have all these ways that we can make it look like the kid is doing what other people are doing, but in the process, we're preventing them from learning the very things that we want them to do. We take away any control. We do things like, I keep going back to these um, errorless learning activities that we give children. It's not possible to become curious when there's no right or wrong. Right. There's no, there's no way for you to become curious when there's no opportunity to figure out how to do something that you don't know how to do right now. Sure. There's no opportunity. Like those things are, are really important. Um, about three months ago, I started talking and, and about the fact that, again, in the U.S., I'm sorry to be so U.S. centric, but, but we have this big what works clearinghouse mm -hmm. that presumably helps us know um, and and I joke that I think we need um, a what works what looks like it's working right now clearinghouse <laughs> for for the number of instructional decisions that we make that today look like they're absolutely the right decision like we can check our boxes and look wow look at they did this they touched the thing 15 times today but that the way that we went about doing that actually gets in the way of long-term progress with becoming a, a reader and a writer, a learner. So I can, the specific example I have is all of the work that's going on right now to try to get kids to learn sight words in mm -hmm. the absence of building any understanding of letter sound relationships and early phonological and phonemic awareness and, and building decoding skills. It, that book was written in 1991 that clearly reviews the research that says, when we teach words as whole word logographs in the absence of also building some alphabetic knowledge, that that word identification skill doesn't contribute to your long-term ability to read and write. Right. So we have to be building some sight words. And there are definitely words that we just have to teach as whole words because you can't sound them out. However, if we do that in the absence of the other piece of it, we're not helping kids in the long run become readers and writers. And so we have to be doing more. We can't think, well, first we're going to teach these 50 sight words and then we can, right. right? Because now we've just wasted all of this time 
in teaching kids a set of words that they're going to have, they're going to end up having to relearn in a different way because it doesn't generalize and contribute to their long-term reading. So it's a really great example of what looks like it's working right now. Like, wow, look at my kid can identify all these words. It's so exciting. But if the only thing that's happening is that sight word instruction in the long run, you're not helping. This is part one of a two-part episode. Stay tuned next week for the second half of this episode. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. 